This is a production of Cornell University. All right. Welcome to the show. How's everybody doing? Uh, Jim, thanks for joining us. We'll get to the Red Sox and the Yankees on their heels in a minute. Uh, I have a lot of Red Sox fans I have to deal with, but let's start talking with uh, talking about a picture I got from Carl uh, this week off of Twitter. Uh, they're excavating the greens at uh, Pebble Beach. And you can see the layered profile there from hundreds of a hundred years of top dressing superintendents making holes, the layered profiles, the, the tines, the deep tines that have happened there over the years. Uh, an absolutely fascinating picture to start out the week, which makes me think about those top dressing and airifying and hoping that you're measuring, right? Carl and I talk a lot about measuring things. Uh, this is a USGA's got a very simple handy dandy method for using a little Inca mat and a, and a, a cooking tray, a cookie tray and collecting some of the sand and uh, seeing how it performs. Um, obviously we continue to have great pictures of people uh, getting their family involved, uh, doing all sorts of things, raking uh, and, and even squeegee and, uh, and working bunkers. So a uh, very exciting time for families to get out there and I thought really good here from Chris Harriman uh, running a member golfer shop open house, uh, improving communications with the people you work with so that they understand, you know, what's going on. Uh, obviously you want to serve them alcoholic beverages and get them as loopy as you can possibly get them and then show them uh, some of the things that you need money for so you can upgrade your equipment. So Carl, let me uh, get to you here on the BMP tip. Uh, once again, this is a project that we've been working on with the Rochester Institute of Technology, the New York State Pollution Prevention Institute, uh, trying to measure and improve adoption of the BMPs. We've got a wonderful website that you can go to and sign up. Many of you might be receiving emails about this. And of course, Carl, we've got this lovely poster. And for those of you watching on uh, News Channel 3 here, the live version, you can see uh, Carl's mugshot with the poster. So Carl, without any further ado, what's the tip of the day? Yeah, so, you know, in our water section here, we have a tip uh, talking about stressing the turf um, and just allowing some drought stress early in the year, springtime and, and in the fall time is when we um, actually recommend this the most because you're not going to, you're not going to lose any grass at these times. Uh, but the stress will help you going into the summer. You can maybe promote some more root growth. You can promote the bent grass a little bit more if you kind of have one of those, uh, you know, hodgepodge bent poa systems. Uh, and if we get to the picture on the next slide, you'll see kind of that stress that, that we might be talking about. Um, you can see this little plot out here on, on our Cornell golf course. Uh, last year, just taking some pictures over the course of the year and you can see the, the bent grass on the left hand of the, on the left hand side of this image. You can actually see some of the footprints and maybe getting close to work there, but the POA not liking it so much, kind of uh, fading into its yellow uh, stressed uh, state there. And these are some of the things that over time is gonna make a big difference. You might not see the bent grass completely take over that POA in one year, um, but over time, this sort of stressing, particularly again, in the shoulders of the seasons uh, helps out with if you wanna promote that bent grass growth. Uh, and we actually, you know, on our poster, we have this little pro tip and, and this comes from Rick Slattery, who, who's really been so integral uh, as a superintendent who's gone through these things, you know, he likens it to an athlete. And, and the athletes, you know, they work out, they have to stress themselves and that builds their muscle, it builds their speed. Uh, but they don't do that in the middle of the season, right? A guy playing a Super Bowl isn't gonna, you know, put up some sets of 330 on a bench press the, the night before a Super Bowl, but 
he might do that in, in the, in the preseason or, or week one. Um, and, and this is kind of, you know, what we're trying to liken it to in the shoulders of the season. So stress that turf a little bit, that will help it be a little bit more resilient uh, moving into the summertime. Excellent, Carl. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, uh, Jim will say, but Tom Brady could bench press 325 pounds before the Super Bowl and be perfectly fine. So listen, let me do a little quick uh, check of the weather, uh, what we got, what we're thinking, and then get right to the conversation with Jim. Lots, lots of ground to cover uh, with the really uh, landmark publication that came out at the end of last year. So we'll start out with temperature. And, and if you've been paying attention at all to the show the last several weeks, you know, we were as many as three weeks ahead. And even if you look out in, in balmy Buffalo, you see Buffalo remains uh, close to three weeks ahead relative to normal, uh, considering this time of year. Most everybody else uh, throughout the region is getting closer and closer to normal temperature conditions as we've hit a bit of a stall. And you look at the outlook for the next week and you can see widespread uh, below normal expectations uh, for much of the Northeast. And at the same time, uh, a lot of the places that had some really dry and even borderline drought conditions have been well above normal in rainfall. In fact, most are, are doing fairly well. Uh, South Jersey and the Delmarva, you can start to see the real break in the pattern uh, over the last week where it's wet versus dry. And the prediction for the coming week will be cool and wet for the next couple of weeks, which of course will, you know, extend the springtime, slow growth a little bit. We're talking about, you know, lows in the thirties and forties and highs only in the fifties and sixties here in the Northeast. Now, you know, oddly enough, you start to look at the disease models and you see a little bit of a tick uh, at least uh, for a day or two here with dollar spot, but this is not the kind of thing I think, you have to worry about because when you look at the forecast website, you see that the next week really is not indicating uh, a significant increase in stress for dollar spot risk anyway, uh, moving forward. So, so, you know, the wrap up for the weather is soil temperature. And again, you can see the gradient here where it's pushing into the upper sixties, low seventies down in the Delmarva, South Jersey, uh, the Delmarva Peninsula, and even into the Philly area, well into the 60s. And of course, 65 is, is where the summer patch sprays typically go on. Uh, so many probably in the metro area will be looking at that this week. But look closely, monitor your soil temperature this week, because we may not get much movement uh, with the cooler weather uh, forecasted. Now, listen, the topic of discussion, and if you're out on golf courses in the Northeast this time of year, Jim, you know from growing up, man, it's seed head heaven. And of course, it really has been revolutionized in the last couple of years uh, with Sean Askew's work looking at these late season applications uh, for seed head suppression. And we've talked about this uh, with, uh, you know, Matt Elmore and other folks, uh, Sean Askew, about the health benefits of maybe reducing uh, the seed head stuff based on Cooper's work from the 80s, right? And so now you're starting to see um, putting greens where seed head suppression, you know, wasn't performed, the dense uh, what I'm going to say to get you irked is the perennial population of plants, right? That start to, you get some level of flowering. You can see, you know, a lot of places will apply seed head suppression across all 18 greens and then invariably two or three greens will still look like this. Now I can say this is, we don't see as much of this 
where people use the fall applications, because even if you miss the spring, you're still probably getting between 60 and 70% uh, suppression moving forward. So Jim, he, he, here's the conversation points for us, right? This is the dense, high shoot density, sort of Oakmont POA that you find, uh, at least I get to see all the time at Beth Page Black, where we've had a few of these greens put in. Maybe some of the other uh, greens throughout the Northeast with Benton POA, you start to see the real differences in growth habits, right? You see the POA really surging, the bent sort of coming along, getting a little leggy. You'll see guys go out uh, and verticut in these things. And, you know, no one's afraid of sort of beating up annual bluegrass in the spring based on uh, what Turgeon proposed many years ago as a life cycle, a seasonal life cycle. I'm sure you're going to tell me this is no longer uh, valid. And, and it's because uh, back in uh, December, um, you had uh, finally accepted this publication on the Poe annual life cycle. And essentially what it looks like you basically said is you're not sure if it's a perennial that the environment kills or it's an annual that maintains a perennial cover. I sort of want to explore that a little bit with you, Jim, uh, about the big shift in thinking here. You know, it still doesn't, I mean, I don't even, I, I want to talk a little bit about the academic aspects of it, but I also want to talk about the practical aspects of it as we think about managing this species as some people continue to choose it as the grass of choice, Jim. Uh, throughout the throughout the Northeast. So uh, let me look at you and hope my internet holds up. Welcome to the show. Um, when is annual bluegrass not annual bluegrass anymore? And it's well, something else. I, I mean, I, I don't know, Frank, it's a complicated question. And, you know, I got to give credit to my graduate student, Devin Carroll. She has kind of devoted her dissertation to this topic. And, you know, it says something about her work ethic that goes over to the library at the university and says, I want to track Poa annua through the, through the scientific literature from Linnaeus forward. So, you know, the first citation in there is from the 1750s when the species was first characterized. And what she learned in doing that, and that's what's detailed in that paper, is that this has kind of been a case of the telephone game, that the narrative about this plant over time has kind of gone a little bit off the rails. You know, there, the original botanical description speaks about this as an annual, but doesn't give any rationale for why that description uh, is in place. And then in other botanicals descriptions from the 1800s, like the, the botanical description for uh, Poa annua var reptans, they talk about it being present year round, right? And for me, one of the, the, the seminal papers that's detailed in there uh, is from the 60s, where I think it was Tim yeah. went, took 6,000 different ecotypes from across Europe, I think from Portugal to Finland. They plant all these at a central location in Germany, and only 40 of those 6,000 were, were true annuals, the rest were perennials. And there's a weak association between, you know, upright growth and seed head production. In uh, the ones that were annual, but the, the vast majority of these survived as perennials. Yet over time, we've come to differentiate between perennial and annual based on growth habit, and there's really not a whole lot of data to support that. And I'm sure you and Carl see this in New York, right? You know, you, you showed 
Poa from Green's FF page, right? And that would meet our definition of perennial type. Well, I'm fairly certain you could go into the roughs at Beth page and you can find upright growing POA annual with seed heads that's there 12 months a year. So why is that annual and the green, the, the POA on the green is perennial? You know, one of the things that we're starting to believe is maybe this species was misnamed. Maybe it's all perennial and it manifests itself as having an annual life cycle in certain environments. And there are other environments that help it to be a continuing perennial over time. Okay, two things. One is, I'm assuming this is part of the big USDA grant you guys all got across the country to, to uh, investigate this on a deeper level. So let's start with, uh, you know, did we all, did you guys all come together? This is one of the first fruits of the beginning of that labor. No, actually, it's not. Um, it's not. You know, the, fo the focus of that USDA grant is on resistance management uh, right. uh, in Poa annual and the evolution of herbicide resistance, which is really a transition zone southern U.S. thing. Uh, um, there's some cases as you move north, but it's it's far more concentrated in my region. This actually came out of superintendents in the transition zone reaching out in say mid mid August with multi tiller. POA in fairways and asking, what do I do? You know, I was getting ready to start a traditional pre-emergence program. These plants are here. They must have survived the summer. We're not sure why. That kind of aligned with um, Devin's start time of a PhD program. And as we started to kind of peel back the layers of the onion on this, realize there's there's a lot here to understand and i kind of think that's why this is the most interesting plant in turf right yeah more, well i mean the more you stutter I, it the more you find out you don't know that well that's right and i would say that a lot of my thinking early on was shaped by the things mary lush uh vic youngner and and jabot found and then danny berger sort of supported right carl did some genetic stuff where he was looking at the types of uh, flow rates or gene flows that he was getting between the populations back, I think it was Carl's old, could have been the 80s. So, you know, my thinking was around, well, you know, in the rough where you don't water as much and drought stress is more the environment, as you say in the paper, where the environment's not conducive, it produces a lot of flowers, looks really straggly, gets really crabgrass-like growth, and then dies. And then, you know, when the water returns or whatever, it, it regrows in places where the irrigation is more uniform, where the drought stress doesn't hit, where the nutrients are applied more uniformly, it behaves, it behaves, quote unquote, like a perennial. That's the shtick I've had for 30 years. I guess I, I want to know if we've abandoned that completely. I don't know that we can say we abandoned it, Frank, because we don't know yet. But I think at least from the point that we're at now, I think it's an open question. Um, you know, you think about environmental management, as you noted, is going to affect morphology, right? And we've made all of our distinctions about what, what is the life cycle of this grass based on its morphological characteristics, right. rather than actually monitoring length of life, right? Mm -hmm. And morphology is going to be influenced by environment, as you've noted, and I think this is something for us to better understand. You know, I mean, I've heard Jill Vargas give talks, uh, you know, about do you think that it's it's cooler in the fairway than it is on the green? And that's why the, the Poe on the green lives and the Poe on the fairway dies, you know, and 
as comical as he can be, I mean, he's, I think he's got on a, a really good point that there's probably a matrix of, let's call it killing conditions that can make this plant not be a perennial. And then if you don't satisfy that matrix, it can live um, for a longer amount of time. And that's what we're trying to understand more because what we see in the transition zone, particularly in warm season grass is, yeah, we have a lot of resistance problems, but we also have situations where POA survives the summer here. And it's not, it, it's not at scale, right? But you think about if you're, you know, you're going to go with a traditional pre-emergence program, particularly around say bent grass putting greens in Bermuda grass. Well, if I have POA that, that is presenting itself, say like POA trivialis in that when it gets really hot, it's going to die back maybe to that crown and be beneath that Bermuda grass canopy. Well, it's probably not going to be affected by a, a perdiamine application of residual chemistry mm -hmm. because it's already there. It's mature and it's rooted into the soil. Mm -hmm. Those are the sorts of things that we're trying to help superintendents with as they struggle, particularly in those greens complex situations to manage this. Well, listen, it follows then when you say environment, it reminds me of, uh, I think it was, I think of the Man of La Mancha. There was, an, a, there was a guy at Penn State who looked at this with Dave Huff. And I don't know if you were even there back then. I don't, I don't even recall how long ago it was, but it was the early days of learning about the impact of mowing on, um, on, on reproductive rate, on fecundity, uh, on flowering, right? How, how it would change the way you mowed it. If you stopped mowing it, it reverted. And, and I, what I want to get into is this concept that I thought Huff presented where he said, yeah, it's the mowing and it goes all the way back to like the sterile hybrid that is quote unquote Oakmont Poa that produces no flowers at all. Where does what you guys have found fit into the Huff thinking about the impact of mowing as an environmental stress that's leading to it being almost sterile? Right. So John Lamanti and I, we were actually office mates at Penn State at the time. Um, he's, he's a good friend and his work was interesting then and is interesting now. Um, you know, I think the stuff that they're doing with mowing and POA is really cool. I do think it's a little bit tricky because if you, if you dig into those papers, what they're really looking at is the effect of mowing on dwarf morphology right? And how that dwarf morphology is maintained over time. But that is being presented in our industry as perenniality and the effect of mowing on perenniality, which is not what they're doing, right? If you look at, at everything that John did at Penn State, they never looked at length of life at all. They don't carry plants forward to mortality. They looked at growth habit and seed production and how mowing was affecting those morphological parameters. And that's super interesting and super cool work, but it doesn't relate to life cycle. But we, but we confuse it with life cycle and um, because then it leads into seed head suppression and thracnose control, uh, the stress that you go on and the amount of fungicides guys will use to keep things uh, you know, alive and going through the year. How does that thinking uh, of not knowing the life cycle alter, begin to change the way you think about the way we manage? Well, I think it kind of depends on where in the country you are, right? You know, I mean, one of the things that I tell superintendents a lot is, you know, mother nature tries to tell you things, 
um, you know, if you've, if you've got a lot of POA in your grains, why are we going to try to fight that uphill battle? Maybe, you know, I learned this with this Patriot season, maybe it's time to punt and kind of like read the tea leaves and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of go with what mother nature's telling you. And so I'm curious for me, it seems that we still talk about annual perennial intermediate types, you know, the annuals, you know, sort of die from environmental stress and the perennials die from pest uh, problems, diseases, or annual bluegrass weevil. The annuals have greater juvenile uh, uh, performance, but not good as adults and, and perennials perform poorly as juveniles, but do well as adults. How does that model fit with what you guys have begun to uncover now? Yeah, I mean, I kind of think one of the, the, the approaches that we're working through, and it's not finished, you know, Devin is, is only about halfway through her PhD work right now, is that we're working under an assumption, well, what if it's all perennial and environment is what's manifesting this as annual versus perennial? You look at Mary Lush's work, right? that talks about seed production and overlapping secessions of, of seed production. And in some climates, that's gonna lead to, you're gonna have POA present all year and then other, it's, it's not. You can have a perennial plant that produces seed and it's still perennial. Ryegrass is a perennial plant that produces a lot of seed and it's still perennial. But if I come into Tennessee or Georgia and I overseed perennial ryegrass, it's still going to be perennial and the environment's going to make it present itself as an annual. And we're wondering, is the same true with POA when you look at the genus, a large number of the species within the genus POA are perennials. Has this been a mischaracterized species that it too is perennial? And when we have the wrong environment for it, it will manifest itself as an annual. So how do you reconcile the concept of the supina trivialis fusing uh, hybridization idea from years ago? So, I mean, we haven't dug into that and because that's, that's a little bit out of my skill set as a researcher and area of expertise. I mean, I think that all of that from my knowledge of the literature could be on point about how we got to this place. Um, but for us, from a management standpoint, we still think with you go back through the literature, there is not a lot of hard evidence to talk about this being an annual species. Okay, so um, I'm going to ask one more question and then Carl, we'll see if there's any questions from the audience. But the common way of producing really good annual bluegrass greens uh, from the scr from scratch is, you know, the, the rabidou wingfoot model, uh, you know, get your cores, spread them out on some sand, produce a variety at your place, uh, put it on sand and, you know, put it under a lot of traffic. It's a, it's a, you know, a lot of the POA golf courses up here in the Northeast gym are, are golf factories. And that's of course been exacerbated, uh, this past year with COVID, um, uh, do you think there's any hope to actually getting improvements in POA that we could move around more effectively? Because if you, you know, there are people selling Oakmont sod, it's working at Beth Page. Is that the future for people who really see POA annual as their species? 
I, I mean, I'm not sure it's out of my region, but I definitely think it can be an awesome putting surface if maintained the right way. And I think environment plays a huge role, you know, and we see this with other annual, you know, I'm going to say weeds because that's what I do for a living. You know, you can put crabgrass in the right tropical environment and it's going to present itself as a perennial turf cover, right? It's not right. going to die off with that first hard frost. Right. The same thing could be, you know, true here with POA based on environment and management. And I think there'll be a decision that has to be made, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? You know, if I'm a superintendent in Tennessee or Southern Virginia, is it worth me trying to make a go of it? Probably not. Um, but in your part of the world where you and Carl are in New York, well, certainly that could be something that um, could be a, a really good surface for you moving forward. Yeah, and, and, and I think and, the work that you, I think the work that you and Carl are doing, looking at traffic patterns on greens, particularly POA greens as a function of square footage and rounds played. I think that is fascinating and, and is long overdue and explains a lot of why there's critiques of this as a surface. Yeah, that's right. Okay, Carl, how about some questions? Because if there's not, I got a big one for Jim. <laughs> Can't hear you. We're, we're all set on questions. So if you want to ask Jim something about... Oh, can you hear me? I... Okay. So I got you now, Jim, can you hear me? I can hear you. All right, good. So, so um, my question is something Matt Elmore said when we had him on, and I know Matt is near and dear to your heart as a former grad student, right? Yes, sir. And we were talking about crabgrass and goosegrass control, uh, how goosegrass is becoming obviously a little bit more of an issue here in the Northeast, but also things like stiltgrass, uh, kylinga. And he made the comment about, the, a growing number of weeds figuring out how to outmaneuver pre-emergent controls, right? Mm -hmm. That, that uh, weeds are evolving in our lawn systems uh, to around our pre-emergent stuff. And I wonder if you couldn't comment on that just philosophically, how you feel about that as what's happening in the weed world. I know you think about these things in a big way, from a resistance perspective, but I'm wondering if you think about it from an ecological perspective. Yeah, I mean, and here I am thinking that your big question for me was gonna be whether I had a Mac Jones jersey yet. Oh! Yeah, come in with a scientific question. All right, I better get ready. All right. Um, you know, I, I think Matt's right. I mean, we've, we've seen that with species shifts here in Tennessee, where, you know, you, you take the Kalingas, for example, um, when I started in Tennessee, we struggled to find sites to do Kalinga work. And now we struggle to find sites that don't have Kalinga in them. Uh, <laughs> and we, 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 we've seen weed species shifts over time. And I think that'll continue. And, you know, here, our emphasis has more been on weeds that might have been, say, Gulf Coast weeds that are now in the northern transition zone. Um, you know, dove weeds, a good example of that. Um, purple nutsedge is another, you know, when I started at Tennessee in 2008, we didn't have purple nutsedge on, on our research farm. And now we have plenty to work with. Um, and I think that that's going to continue. And we see it with all, I mean, you have, you have a weed scientist at Cornell who's working with Palmer Amaranth in New York, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a mid-south uh, cotton weed and, and, or crop system weed, I should say. And Lynn Sinoski is working with it with all sorts of different growers and different commodities you know, in and around New York. So, I mean, I think 
it's one of the reasons why weeds are really fascinating to work with is that ability to adapt to environment, which links back to what we're talking about. That's with exactly color. right. Yeah, it's the perfect full circle thing. And Carl's got a bad connection, Jim. So I'll thank you on behalf of both of us. It's always great to see you. Uh, you know, I was thinking, Jimmy G, you could be Jimmy B, right? Are they going to get Jimmy G back to New England or is it really going to be a Mac Jones situation? Jim, it's so great to see you. Thanks for taking the time and, and give my best to all our pals out there at, at Tennessee. And for Carl Scamenti, I'm Frank Rossi. Thanks for joining us on the Cornell Turf Show. We'll be back uh, next week for week 10. Uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you all then. Thanks a lot, Jim. Take care of yourself, brother. Thanks, guys. Thanks for yeah. having me on. Yeah, happy to do it. This has been a production of Cornell University, on the web at cornell.edu.